welcome to podcast number 67 for Thanks for Your Service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. One of the great experiences of doing these podcasts is coming across remnants of Australian military history that not a lot of people know about. Who knew that Ballarat in Victoria played a major role in training RAAF personnel during World War II? Peter and Janet joins us from the Air Force Association Ballarat to tell us more. It was a couple of months ago that I was fortunate to visit you folks on a cold Ballarat winter's day at the Ballarat Airfield, and, and I found out about this World War II training establishment that I never knew existed. What was that? Wireless Air Gunner School was set up early uh, 1940 at um, Ballarat because Ballarat was an existing RAAF airfield, and um, the initial commanding officer, Fairburn, his brother was the then Minister for Air. Um, so we feel that there's probably one of the reasons that it was set up here in, in, in Ballarat was as a result of the Fairburn family. So at the, 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 the start of the Second World War, the Brits uh, wanted um, the Dominions, as they called them in those days. They wanted uh, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, Rhodesia, uh, at that stage, as it was called, to supply aircrew. And uh, the um, Empire Air Training Scheme was set up, and um, they basically what they wanted was um, for the uh, RAAF, oh, sorry, the RAF. They could they could train up to fifty thousand air crew annually, and um, they wanted Australia to provide up to twenty eight thousand of those air crew, and the the wireless air gunner was part of that. One wags was part of a, a training scheme across Australia. So there, there were a couple of... Yes, uh, sorry, there was uh, number two WAGS was in Parks, New South Wales, and number three was in Mirraburra, Queensland. But Ballarat was the first wireless air gunner school to be established in 1940. Um, only the wireless component of the training was done in Ballarat. Um, the Gunner part um, was done in Port Pirie, South Australia, Evans Head, New South Wales, and mostly Sale in Victoria. So that Ballarat was deemed to be not safe as a community for the gunning part of the um, uh, course. So they were sent out to those bases because they could go out over the sea and, and have their um, crack gunnery practice doing that. So, so there were 57 wireless courses and 12 navigator courses held over the five years at Ballarat. You mentioned before that Ballarat was an existing RAAF airbase. So was that the reason that One Wags was chosen as uh, Ballarat was chosen to be the location for One Wags? Well, we we believe it was probably influenced by the Fairburns. They apparently originally owned the land which was then sold to the RAAF um, and the base was formed here. 
And as I mentioned before, Fairburn was the commanding officer from uh, 1940, so he set the whole thing up. Um, and he was commanding officer from 1940 to, to late 1944. Um, and his brother was the Minister for Air. So we just feel that there's probably that was one of the reasons. Also, Ballarat um, was a, a large town even back then of, uh, and, and, and a lot of industry here. Uh, Ballarat has been a, a, a large centre of industry. There's a lot of trains built here back in the um, late 1800s, early 1900s. So it was, it was very much a, a, an established um, um, area for, for industry. And early on in the, in the early 1914 time, Ballarat had an existing airport and we had the first flying school in Australia. So there was the history, history there. Um, the first um, one wags didn't start at the aerodrome, actually started at the showgrounds in Ballarat and the first uh, 80 uh, trainees were sent there. Um, and they were in tents, as you can imagine what it would have been like in winter. And, and they came from all over Australia, um, the trainees from all walks of life. So they started there. And then every month, another 80 trainees were taken into the base to be trained. Um, and eventually it just got too big. And so they went out to the airport and that's when they started um, building all the, the huts and, and the infrastructure out there. Can you, can you give us an, an idea or an overview of the actual training that was conducted at One Wag? So from a student coming in to Ballarat, uh, how long did they train for and, and what did the training course look like? Well, um, they were here for approximately six months and they had to learn uh, Morse code, learned to operate radios. They went then went into, into aircraft. So they then used aircraft, DC-3s, the Avro Ansons, to actually operate the uh, uh, radio, et cetera, um, from. And what's interesting is the degree of proficiency was they were doing in six months what was taking normally two years to do. So they pushed people through very quickly. And then with the... Uh, the pilots that were trained in, under the Empire Scheme, they then went to Canada for their final training because it was close to UK and the Australians basically were spread, well, to start off with, uh, they went to Europe. My father, for example, went over in 1940-41. He did course number six here and Janet's father also did the, the, the Wireless Air Gunners course here and hence a lot of our interest has come out of, of, of knowing that they were here. Um, so then they went across and they would predominantly went into RAF uh, squadrons in, in in Europe. The only two real Australian squadrons were 10 and 461, and they were the Sunderland squadrons, so the flying boat squadrons. 10 was formed uh, in before the war, and they went over to pick up Sunderland aircraft. The war broke out, and... Um, they were first first Australians into the Second World War. Um, so, on a, for example, on a Sunderland, there would be at least two wireless air gunners. Your Catalinas, at least one wireless air gunner, and then on your all your bombers had wireless air gunners, and they would vary depending on the size of the plane. 
as to how many wireless air gunners were were on. So the, the the larger bombers would have probably also had the two. From memory, it was your father in one of those squadrons who flew in one of those squadrons. Is that correct? Yeah, he was in ten. He was in ten squadrons. So he went over. He did course number six in 1940, and he went across to uh, the UK. Would have been uh, late 41 that he got there, and he went straight into ten squadron. He came back in uh, late 1944 as an instructing officer and was here until he was demobbed in uh, March 1946. So he was, and what's what's interesting is the the, the premises that we occupy is the, is the original officer's mess. So uh, it's quite, quite funny walking around the, the, the building knowing my father walked around there um, you know, nearly 80 years ago. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think you talk, you talked before about about the infrastructure that was needed for the base at Ballarat Airfield. Can you give us an idea at, at the height of the training during the war? How, how big was the base, and what what did it actually consist of? There were um, over 160 what they call P huts. So these were the huts that were used both for training, messes, and living. Then there was gymnasium and various um, other buildings that were used for maintenance, storage, and there were four uh, hangars, which are still here, the Bellman hangars, uh, on, on the base. So it was very extensive, and there's about 40 of the original sheds, um, pea sheds, uh, in existence, of which Hut 48, where we, uh, the Air Force Association is, and the four hangars are still here. So being an RAAF base, there was a lot of infrastructure left uh, because it was an operational base until the late, until the mid-60s. It's what struck me in terms of our visit to you this year is it's actually surprising of how much the base actually still exists. I mean, obviously, where you are, it, it's been renovated, but there's a lot of infrastructure and a lot of evidence of, of, of the base. And, and what got me was, was the size of it. Yes, yeah. Well, there were um, um, there were a total of just over 6,000 uh, crew went through the training and you got to look at all the support people. You had chefs, you had um, uh, all your secretarial staff, they had shoemakers, they had boilermakers, they had you name it and they had it here. So it was a, a fully operational community. There would have been at any one time there's a possibility of what being about 2,000 people on the base at uh, one time. Like in uh, 1943, they had uh, that was the peak of the training. They had 70 officers, two nurses, 109 WAFs, 1,568 airmen, uh, plus all the ground staff, and um, and then the planes consisted of wackets. Um, Avro Ansons and um, uh, so on. So it, it actually had um, a railway line that went out to the base um, and that's how they transported a lot of their goods and the trainees came backward and forward on the, on the trains. So it was quite, it was like a, a satellite city really in its day out there and um, when um, you think over 6,000 people went through in in the five years. So it was a very important part of World War II in supporting Britain against the uh, their fight. And then later, of course, 
um, our airmen were then deployed to the Pacific once um, Japan came into the into the fray. So. When we were being given a tour of the base, I believe that there were American bombers also based there. Is that right? The Americans um, used Ballarat as a, a recreational base, and like uh, the Victoria Gardens are, um, we, there's a, a very large American base there, and um, they uh, there were bombers that came in and out uh, for training purposes, and in fact, um, G for George the uh, liberator that's in um, the museum in, in Canberra actually came up here to raise, they did a fundraising day where they took people uh, for flights and uh, that was very popular. Uh, but yes, the Americans were here, but they were on um, um, what's R&R. &R. Uh, they weren't actually being trained here. It was purely for R&R. &R. I remember you saying that a, a one WAG graduate also had links with the famous Dam Buster raids. Who was he? Frederick Spafford. Um, so he did uh, the One Wags Course 6, um, and uh, then he went to gunnery at Evans Head. He was posted to England, and um, he completed um, some 30 operations with the RAF 50 Squadron, and he received the Distinguished Flying Medal for his skill and praiseworthy example. He was commissioned in January 43, in March, he was invited to, enjoy, to, uh, to join the elite um, 617 squadron, which was formed to do the bombing of the dams in the Rua and um, Vesa Valleys. So he was actually the, um, the, the, the wing commander, Guy Gibson, made the comment of Stafford that he was acclaimed as a, a, bomb, a, a, a bomb aimer. And uh, so, yes, so he did the... Uh, uh, the course, and unfortunately, um, um, didn't come home. No, um, on a, fo a following raid that uh, was similar to the Dam Busters, he went out again and um, was shot down, and um, and they were killed. So uh, he was uh, only twenty five years old when he was killed. So, yeah. but um, he was portrayed in the movie The Dam Busters by an actor, and. Um, had the darker um, RAAF uniform on and wore his cap on an, on the side. A very, uh, from all accounts, a, a great character and, and a fantastic uh, bomb aimer. Can people actually visit the base? Yes. You know, one of the things that is happening um, currently, um, certainly by ourselves, is to encourage people to come. Um, we had the um, Friends of Museum from Point Cook up the end of July. It was about 45 people came through the base. We've done similar things with other organisations. So, you know, I, I, the, the biggest issue we have, interestingly, I did an address um, at the um, Mechanics Institute a few months back, and people that live in Ballarat are really unaware that there's really even an airport there. Um, and what, what, what's operational, how it's operational, they've just extended the runway and uh, we know that um, RECs are, are interested in, in, in being involved in um, services. We'll see what happens with that. But the, 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 um, the, the revenue from the airport um, is something about $10 million a year into the Ballarat economy. So there's a lot of car clubs there. There's a lot of the, the people that occupy the building with us, the um, engine people. They're, they're running a... Um, 
a field day uh, shortly uh, in October. And um, so that's once again encouraging people to come and visit. So, uh, and we, we'd welcome people if they got in touch with us, we'd, we'd love to have people there. So we've got two museums out at the airport. Um, one's the Aviation Museum that's run by the Aero Club out there. And the other one is the Avro Anson Museum, which is in the old um, gymnasium, which used to be the One Wags Gymnasium for the trainees. So there, there are things to see out at the uh, airport that are, are of interest for aviation enthusiasts and so on. So, can you also tell us a little bit about yourselves, about the Ballarat Air Force Association? Yeah, it was started back in um, '46. And um, its purpose was to bring together returned service people. It has developed, obviously, the, 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 the people that came back from the war. Uh, unfortunately, there aren't any um, um, alive. They've all passed on. And um, so now it's basically with the, with the sons and daughters of the people that went through um, and or ex-Air uh, Force people. We've got people that, that were in Vietnam. We've got people that have been um, in recent places around the world with the RAAF. So we're, we're really encouraging people. We run functions every every um, second Tuesday. We have a luncheon. We run um, theatre theatre days. We and, and we try we try to be involved with the other organisations out there. Like a lot of organisations, um, our biggest issue is is getting members. Um, and that's across the board. It doesn't matter whether it's the RSL legacy ourselves. It, it, it's it's an issue. But uh, we 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 we'd love to have any visitors out. We can. Now, you've and also got an extensive business. website for One Wags. Where can people find that? What's the web address? The web address is onewags.org.au, or lowercase. On that website, there are over six thousand names. Uh, where people can do a search on the home page if they're looking for a father, grandfather, etc. cetera. Uh, if they're there, they, that will take them to a profile page which lists the um, service records of that airman. Um, we also have um, a memorial section because uh, 1,182 trainees from Ballarat were killed. So... Um, we have uh, a section dedicated to them um, with a lot more information about how they were killed, what squadrons they were in, uh, prisoners of war status, um, gallantry citations. It's a very in-depth look at um, those people who were killed and also quite um, intensive descriptions of the base, the history, what the courses were all about, both um, uh, the wireless component and the gunnery section that was held off off the base. Um, so yes, it's uh, we've had um, just recently over one hundred thousand individual browsers. Mm. So we're celebrating that on the homepage um, because that we feel that's quite an achievement in three years to also come in the. the uh, one of the things that Janet does um, each couple of months is a special story on one of the people. So um, eight, 12 months or so ago, she has to do one on my father, but she's done, um, we've, we've, we've had 
um, families that have from the website have actually come and, and joined us. We had one family do a presentation um, on their um, their father. So th that, that's also part of it, that we encourage people to contact us. They've got information and, uh, and, and, and we're more than happy to do stories on people. One WAGS was established through the Empire Air Training Scheme. What was that? The Empire Air Training Scheme um, was set up by um, Great Britain um, and it was they came to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Rhodesia, um, as it was then called, and asked for um, contributions into uh, supplying crew. The factories in, in, in England were capable of building the quantities of aircraft, but they were not capable of producing the numbers of aircrew required. So Australia made a commitment um, to supply uh, about 26, 27,000 aircrew. And of, of those, um, 6,000 uh, plus were wireless air gunner. So um, the others were pilots, um, uh, obviously um, 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 uh, navigators. navigators, mechanics, uh, et cetera. So, it was a very, when you think of the population of Australia at the time, it was a huge request. And um, it actually got to the stage in um, it was 1944 where the, um, the wireless componentry of the, the, the program started to wind back because we, we, we did it, we, did, we had done our job. Mm. Um, and as had New Zealand, as had done Canada. Um, I mentioned before about um, the squadrons that went to um, the UK, the, the, the two Australian, there's also a, a, a New Zealand squadron went across in Sunderland's, there was a Canadian squadron went across the Sunderland's. Um, so our contributions, when you think back to the populations that we had, were just huge. Mm. Part of the agreement, the Empire Air Training Scheme, was that what Australia wanted was that the crews were to form into RAAF squadrons. And so some of those were formed, but on the whole, most of the air crew that went over through the scheme uh, ended up in RAF squadrons and served in Bomber Command, Coastal Command, Fighter Command and so on. And just as a, as a little um, uh, side, of the 28,000 that Australia supplied, uh, 3,486 uh, lost their lives. Mm. Um, so more than half of the total of all RAAF personnel killed in action and almost 20% of all Australian combat, combat deaths in World War II. So even though um, we were supplying these enormous amounts of air crew, they knew when they got there that one in three weren't going to come home. Um, so the, um, the rate of, um, of deaths was enormous. And um, so these young 19, 20, 21 year olds um, were so brave in, in our opinion. Mm -hmm. And uh, so. I actually had um, an uncle, dad's older brother, who was a pilot in 461 squadron and uh, he was the first pilot in a major incident um, in um, June 43 
and uh, where they survived an attack by eight JU-88s and limped home into uh, crash landed Prasans in Cornwall. 13 weeks later, he had his own uh, plane and he was shot down and so he didn't come home. So it, um, and unfortunately, with the, 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 the Sunderland people, it's a bit like the, the bomber people, the, most, most of the bodies were, well, in the Sunderland case, the bodies weren't found. And most in the cases of the, uh, the Bomber Command, uh, the same thing. Thank you so much again for your time. That's the podcast for today. The website for OneWags is www.onewags.org.au. We're keen to hear your feedback by leaving a review on your podcast app because your reviews helps new listeners find our podcast. You can help support this podcast via Patreon or buy me a coffee. The links are on our website and Facebook page and your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for your service.